This is an audio narration of Human Enhancement Ethics, The State of the Debate by Nick Bostrom and Julian Savulescu. Narrated by Sean Acker. You can find the original paper at nickbostrom.com. Links and related reading suggestions are in the episode description. Section heading. Background. Are we good enough? If not, how may we improve ourselves? Must we restrict ourselves to traditional methods like study and training? Or should we use science to enhance some of our mental and physical capacities more directly? Over the last decade, human enhancement has grown into a major topic of debate in applied ethics. Interest has been stimulated by advances in the biomedical sciences, advances which, to many, suggest that it will become increasingly feasible to use medicine and technology to reshape, manipulate and enhance many aspects of human biology, even in healthy individuals. To the extent that such interventions are on the horizon or already available, there is an obvious practical dimension to these debates. This practical dimension is underscored by an outcrop of think tanks and activist organizations devoted to the biopolitics of enhancement. Already, one can detect a biopolitical fault line developing between pro-enhancement and anti-enhancement groupings. Transhumanists on one side who believe that a wide range of enhancements should be developed and that people should be free to use them to transform themselves in quite radical ways. And bioconservatives on the other who believe that we should not substantially alter human biology or the human condition. There are also miscellaneous groups who try to position themselves in between these poles as the golden mean. While the terms of this emerging political disagreement are still being negotiated, there might be a window of opportunity open for academic bioethicists to influence the shape and direction of this debate before it settles into a fixedly linear ideological tug of war. Beyond this practical relevance, The topic of enhancement also holds theoretical interest. Many of the ethical issues that arise in the examination of human enhancement prospects hook into concepts and problems of more general philosophical significance. Concepts such as human nature, personal identity, moral status, well-being, and problems in normative ethics, political philosophy, philosophy of mind, and epistemology. In addition to these philosophical linkages, Human enhancement also offers thought fodder for several other disciplines, including medicine, law, psychology, economics, and sociology. The degree to which human enhancements constitute a distinctive cluster of phenomena for which it would be appropriate to have a multidisciplinary academic subfield is debatable, however. One common argumentative strategy, used predominantly to buttress pro-enhancement positions, is to highlight the continuities between new controversial enhancement methods and old accepted ways of enhancing human capacities. How is taking modafinil fundamentally different from imbibing a good cup of tea? How is either morally different from getting a full night's sleep? Are not shoes a kind of foot enhancement? Clothes an enhancement of our skin? A notepad, similarly, can be viewed as a memory enhancement, It being far from obvious how the fact that a phone number is stored in our pocket instead of our brain is supposed to matter once we abstract from contingent factors, such as cost and convenience. In one sense, all technology can be viewed as an enhancement of our native human capacities, 
enabling us to achieve certain effects that would otherwise require more effort or be altogether beyond our power. Pushing this thought further, one could argue that even mental algorithms, such as we use to perform basic arithmetic in our heads and learn skills, such as literacy, are a kind of enhancement of our mental software. When we learn to calculate and read, we are literally reprogramming the microstructure of our nervous system, with physiological effects just as real as those resulting from the ingestion of a psychoactive drug, and often more durable and with more profound consequences for our lives. At the limit of this line of reasoning, all learning could be viewed as physiological enhancement, and all physical and organizational capital could be viewed as external enhancements. Stripped of all such enhancements, it would be impossible for us to survive, and maybe we would not even be fully human in the few short days before we perished. If the concept of human enhancement is stretched to this extent, it becomes manifestly unfit for service as an organizing idea for a new and distinctive field of ethical inquiry. This need not trouble enhancement advocates who maintain that there is no morally significant difference between novel biomedical enhancements and all the other more familiar ways of enhancing. Those who object to human enhancement, however, must resist this inflationary interpretation of what enhancement is, drawing a line somewhere to distinguish the problematic new types of enhancements from the unobjectionable use of shoes, clothes, tea, sleep, PDAs, literacy, forklifts, and the bulk of contemporary medicine. Such a line need not be sharp. Many important and useful philosophical terms are vague. Nevertheless, two challenges must be met. First, some account needs to be given of what counts as an enhancement, an account that must be reasonably intelligible and non-arbitrary, capturing something that might plausibly be thought of as a kind. Second, given such an account, it needs to be shown that it tracks a morally relevant distinction. Unless these two challenges can be met, it would appear misguided to organize our ethical thinking in this area around the concept of enhancement. Enhancement might still be useful to flag a patch of territory consisting of a variety of loosely related practices, techniques, and prospects, but it would hardly make sense either to pledge allegiance to such a flag or to devote oneself to opposing what it stands for. Instead, our ethical judgments would have to track different and finer distinctions that would reflect the concrete circumstances and consequences of particular enhancement practices. Precisely what capacity is being enhanced, in what ways? Who has access? Who makes the decisions? within what cultural and socio-political context, at what cost to competing priorities, with what externalities. Justifiable ethical verdicts may only be attainable following a specification of these and other similarly contextual variables. To accept this conclusion is to accept a kind of normalization of enhancement. That is, at a fundamental normative level, there is nothing special about human enhancement interventions. They should be evaluated, sans prejudice and bias, on a case-by-case basis using the same messy criteria that we employ in other areas of practical ethics. Footnote number three. Even ethical theories that are simple in their structure, 
such as hedonism, become complex and messy in their application to many real-world predicaments. End of footnote. The contributors to this volume bring to the table a variety of perspectives, from both sides of the debate and from both Eastern and Western, secular and religious traditions. We have organized the chapters into two roughly distinguishable groups. First, those dealing with the ethics of enhancement, more or less in general, and with associated issues such as the normative significance of human nature. Second, those focusing on the ethics of some particular type of enhancement. This is followed by a final chapter that addresses enhancement medicine as a practical, scientific challenge. Section Heading Enhancement in General Norman Daniels asks what it would take to change human nature. He argues that this is a taller order than might at first appear to be the case. Human nature, says Daniels, is a dispositional, selective population concept. It is dispositional in the sense that the same human nature will manifest as very different phenotypes depending on the environment in which it is placed. It is a population concept in the sense that to characterize human nature, we must aggregate across individual variation. And it is selective in the sense that some traits, for example rationality, are often claimed to be more central to human nature than others for example, nasal hair. On this account, we cannot modify human nature unless we act on a population level. Furthermore, the intervention must affect traits central to that nature. To Daniels, this suggests that, quote, genetic interventions are less likely to be threats than environmental interventions that undermine our human capabilities or nature. End quote. It has been argued that human germline engineering must be opposed on grounds that it would change human nature. George Annas, in particular, has been promoting the need for a new UN, quote, Convention on the Preservation of the Human Species, end quote, which would realize itself in an international treaty to ban species-altering research. Annas claims that, quote, Cloning and inheritable genetic alterations can be seen as crimes against humanity of a unique sort. They are techniques that can alter the essence of humanity itself. End quote. The chapter by Eric Jungst offers a critique of this view. Jungst notes that species are not, quote, static collections of organisms that can be preserved against change like a can of fruit. They wax and wane with every birth and death and their genetic complexions shift across time and space. End quote. Interpreted strictly, a ban on altering the human species would cover too much, since almost everything we do as humans might affect the genetic composition of the next generation. Taken literally, such a ban would seem to require the universal adoption of cloning as the sole method of reproduction. Yet, if the proposed ban on species altering is given a more relaxed reading, as, say, a proscription of interventions that would alter our taxonomically defining traits or that would significantly alter human nature, then it would fail to serve its intended purpose. For under this interpretation, even most germline modifications, genetic enhancements and reproductive manipulations, like cloning, would not be species-altering. 
Ryuchi Ida presents an Asian bioconservative perspective on human enhancement. Ida tells us that, quote, in Japan, we respect the view of as it stands. This attitude expresses respect for nature and for the natural state of the baby. Ethical appeals to the human welfare or individual happiness to justify the use of science or technology may have intuitive force in the West, but may seem alien to a non-Western audience. End quote. Ida distinguishes between natural improvement, such as may come about through training and study, and unnatural improvement, such as may result from taking anabolic steroids. The latter kind of improvement, he believes, may not be permissible because it depends on and fosters an instrumentalist or dualistic view of human beings. On this view, as Ida points out, it is not only newfangled enhancement interventions, such as memory-enhancing drugs or genetic engineering that are morally suspect. Much of what Westerners now consider to be normal therapeutic medicine is also problematic. Quote, Oriental medicine has as its basic principle the re-establishment of the balance of body and soul. All the diseases come from the imbalance of the patient. It is true that this type of medicine does not practice big operations, like organ transplants or brain operations. Oriental medicine sees the conditions that might call for such interventions as natural, simply a consequence of human mortality and it accordingly sees such a patient as entering a stage of returning to nature, i.e. dying. End quote. Ida notes that in East and Southeast Asia, Buddhism and Confucianism often have a dominant role in daily life, and the lifestyle and social practices are still rooted in agricultural traditions. While the sensibilities that Ida describes may seem somewhat alien to Western bioethicists, especially the idea that there are any kind of ethical grounds for recoiling from big operations and organ transplantations. A position quite close to that of Ida has recently been articulated by Michael Sandel, an American political philosopher who has served on the President's Council on Bioethics during the George W. Bush administration. Sandel warns that enhancement and genetic engineering represent a kind of hyper-agency, a dark Promethean aspiration to remake nature to serve our purposes and satisfy our desires. We are at risk, Sandel believes, of losing our, quote, openness to the unbidden. The problem is not the drift to mechanism, but the drive to mastery. And what the drive to mastery misses, and may even destroy, is an appreciation of the gifted character of human powers and achievements. To acknowledge the giftedness of life is to recognize that our talents and powers are not wholly our own doing, despite the effort we expend to develop and to exercise them. End quote. When put in this way, however, the objection becomes a concern about a contingent and speculative psychological effect of the practice of enhancement. One could imagine an enhancement user who is under no illusion that her talents and powers are wholly her own doing, understanding clearly that without the contributions from nature, God or fortune, she would be literally nothing. Perhaps one solution would be for the FDA to require appropriate labelling of enhancement products. A bottle of memory-boosting pills could come with the inscription, 
may cause constipation, dry mouth, skin rashes, and loss of openness to the unbidden. If symptoms persist after 48 hours, consult your physician and or your spiritual advisor. A more philosophically sophisticated response to Sandel's argument is on offer in the chapter by Frances Cam. She considers whether, as Sandel claims, the desire for mastery motivates enhancement and whether such a desire could be a ground for its impermissibility. Cam also examines Sandel's views about parent-child relations and how enhancement would affect distributive justice and the duty to aid. She also discusses the therapy-enhancement distinction and criticizes some recent attempts to explicate this distinction in a way that would allow it to carry normative weight, including attempts by Sandel and by P.H. Schwartz. The therapy-enhancement distinction comes in for further scrutiny in the chapter by John Harris. He critiques the idea, developed by Norman Daniels and others, of using the notion of normal or species-typical functioning as the dividing line separating morally high-priority interventions, those aimed at preserving or restoring normal functioning, from morally low-priority interventions, those aimed at enhancing normal functioning. Arguing from a consequentialist position, Harris concludes that, quote, The overwhelming moral imperative for both therapy and enhancement is to prevent harm and confer benefit. Bathed in that moral light, it is unimportant whether the protection or benefit conferred is classified as enhancement or improvement, protection or therapy. End quote. Harris also briefly touches on some other objections to enhancement, including the playing God objection, which he gives short shrift. This objection is treated in more detail in the chapter by Tony Cody. The objection may, but need not, rely on theological assumptions. Cody distinguishes three traditions in Christian theology regarding the relationship between human beings and the natural order. Domination, stewardship, and co-creation. According to the domination model, humans were created to lord it over nature. According to the stewardship model, the role of humans is to act to preserve the natural order. And in the metaphor of co-creation, God has called human beings into a creative partnership in the ongoing creation of the world. The domination model has been criticized as insensitive to ecological concerns. The stewardship model for according an unduly passive role to a species endowed with as much initiative and creativity as ours and the co-creation for downplaying the distance between God and creatures. Cody thinks that all three models have an element of truth in them, and that, quote, the dialogue between them exhibits the tensions that need to be kept in view by believers in negotiating the mystery of humanity's place in the created order. End quote. In its secular interpretation, the critique of playing God seems primarily a criticism of an attitude, hubris, and only derivatively of a program or proposal. Cody suggests that when people worry about the application of the latest scientific and technological discoveries and put this worry in terms of playing God, they are concerned that these applications may embody an unjustified confidence in knowledge, power, and virtue beyond what can reasonably be allowed to human beings. Overzealous transhumanists do not have a monopoly on this vice, as Cody writes. Quote, 
The temptation to act in ways that ignore or make light of the inbuilt constraints on human knowledge, power, and benevolence is certainly one to which all humans are prone, including bishops, theologians, and priests. Indeed, those who believe that they are privy to God's purposes through revelation, inspiration, or tradition, or all combined, are perhaps especially open to the temptation. We should recall in this connection the sad history of religious wars, crusades, inquisitions, the preaching of erroneous doctrines, and the failure to preach important truths. I am a Catholic, and my own church has its blemishes in all these regards. End quote. Eric Parens, in a similarly conciliatory spirit, suggests that proponents and critics of enhancement technologies, while often talking past one another, have more in common than they realize. Parents believes that both groups proceed from a, quote, moral ideal of authenticity, end quote, although they differ in how they understand this ideal. And he believes that these different understandings of authenticity, quote, grow out of two different but equally worthy ethical frameworks which stand in a fertile tension with each other, end quote. It may be apropos to mention a recent psychological study which found that people are much more reluctant to enhance traits believed to be fundamental to self-identity, for example, social comfort, than traits considered less fundamental, for example, concentration ability, consistent with the idea that beliefs about authenticity may be an important shaper of attitudes towards enhancement. However, the same paper also found that perceptions about authenticity could be easily manipulated Advertisement taglines that framed enhancements as enabling become who you are, rather than enhancing, become more than who you are, eliminated the preference for non-fundamental over fundamental trait enhancements. We can rely on big pharmaceutical companies for our drugs and on marketing firms for our authenticity. The chapter by Arthur Kaplan considers some general arguments against enhancement made by bioconservatives anti-meliorists in Kaplan's terminology, including concerns about authenticity and the worry that the happiness and satisfaction achieved through engineering is seductive and will lead to a defamation of our character and spirit. Kaplan argues that neither of these arguments provides a sufficient reason for opposing enhancement or optimization either of ourselves or our children. He concludes that what we must do is, quote, Take each proposed enhancement technology under consideration and decide whether what it can do is worth whatever price it might exact. End quote. Minor enhancements, such as a nootropic giving us a temporary 10 or 20% boost in our ability to memorize facts when studying for a medical exam, is one thing. But what about more radical forms of enhancement? What of enhancements that would give us some significant non-human characteristics, or ones that could make us post-human? These questions are addressed in a chapter by Julian Savulescu. In particular, Savulescu discusses the views put forward in The Human Prejudice, a posthumously published paper by the late philosopher Bernard Williams. Williams argued that a prejudice in favor of our human conspecifics is morally acceptable by contrast to certain other prejudices, such as racism and sexism. Savulescu argues that William's defense of speciesism fails. Savulescu also shows how the issues raised in this debate 
connect to fundamental problems in normative ethics and in metaethics, such as internalism versus externalism about normative reasons, the criteria for moral status, submaximization versus satisficing, and the role of partiality and special relations in determining our moral duties. Section heading Enhancements of certain kinds. Even if there is no moral reason to forego enhancement in general, there might still be aspects of some particular types of enhancement that are morally problematic. One morally charged context of enhancement is reproduction. There are many methods, low and high tech, by which we influence the character of new persons being brought into the world. At one end of the spectrum, Mate choice has an obvious effect on what our children will be like, and the quality of prospective offspring is one factor that can influence our choice of romantic partners. According to evolutionary psychology, sexual attraction is often keyed to a subconscious assessment of the genetic quality of a potential mate, along with other factors. These factors can also be taken into account when we consciously deliberate to select among romantic prospects. We can also achieve eugenic objectives by exerting choice over the timing of conception, for example, by taking into account the increasing risk of birth defects associated with conceiving at an older age. Further, maternal nutrition and drug use can affect the fetus, and abortion can be used to terminate pregnancies when chromosomal abnormalities or other serious defects are detected. For couples undergoing in vitro fertilization, Pre-implantation genetic diagnoses can be used to select embryos without the need for abortion. The number of genetic conditions that can be assayed will increase with advancing technology. It will likely become possible to select not only against genetic defects, but also for gene combinations correlating with positive desirable traits. It is also likely that more active forms of genetic interventions will become feasible, such as gene therapy either on zygotes, gametes, or even on the reproductive system of adults, which could increase the likelihood that resulting embryos will have genetic endowments correlating with desirable attributes. After birth, parents and society continue to shape the character and capacities of children through means including education, nutrition, and rearing. The context of reproduction involves making choices that directly and intimately affect not only the decision-maker, but also the resulting children. This introduces distinctive moral elements that are not usually present to the same extent in cases where a competent adult makes a free and informed decision to enhance herself. Another complicating moral element in reproduction is that our choices may determine which of several possible persons come into existence. According to many ethical theories, there are fundamental moral differences between cases in which our actions affect some person who already exists, or will come to exist independently of our actions, and cases in which our actions result in the creation of a new person who would not otherwise have existed. Negative selection, selection against disability, has come under criticism, especially from some members of the disability community. Positive selection, Selection for some desired trait in our offspring other than absence of disability or disease has generated even broader unease in the public at large. Dan Brock examines a series of arguments for the claim that selection of children is morally wrong. 
including expressivist concerns, the playing God objection, the worry that selection might undermine our unconditional acceptance of children, the critique of the notion of perfection, and the allegation that selection is, in a bad sense, eugenics. Brock argues that selection of our children is not in itself morally problematic and concludes that, quote, if negative or positive selection should be rejected, it will have to be for other reasons, not simply because selection of our children is wrong, end quote. Some other moral considerations relating to genetic selection and genetic engineering of offspring are evaluated in the chapter by Peter Singer. The objection that genetic selection would be bad for the child does not work, Singer argues. Of greater concern are some of the potential societal effects that such enhancement could have. If Robert Nozick's proposal to establish a genetic supermarket, i.e., letting prospective parents make their own reproductive choices within wide moral limits, were adopted, it could lead to resources being squandered in a competitive pursuit of positional goods. Positional goods, such as height, are ones whose goodness for those who have them depends on other subjects not possessing them. An enhancement that had no effect other than making the user six inches taller would provide no net benefit if universally applied. It might, on the contrary, result in net losses inasmuch as food consumption would increase, vehicles would need to be redesigned, etc. But as Singer notes, many enhancements would provide benefits that are not merely positional. A related concern is that genetic selection might aggravate inequality. In principle, there are many ways in which this concern could be assuaged. The technology could be made available to all, or only to the worst off or other compensating social policies could be put in place. In practice, whether any such measures were implemented would depend on the outcome of political struggles. Singer points out that bans on genetic enhancement would have limited effect if couples wishing to avail themselves of such opportunities could simply travel to another state or another country in order to do so. Moreover, nations that prohibit their citizens from using genetic enhancement might lose out in terms of economic competitiveness and fall behind countries that embrace enhancement. Susumu Shimazono discusses attitudes to prenatal selection in Japan, where screening is less accepted and less widely practiced than it is in many Western countries such as France, the United States, and the United Kingdom. In the mid-90s, approximately 90% of fetuses with Down syndrome were aborted in these countries while less than 10% of affected Japanese fetuses were aborted. This is not because Japanese culture is especially averse to abortion. Some 350,000 abortions are performed there annually. So what is the explanation? Shimizono suggests several factors. In Japan, acceptance of abortion was historically driven not so much by women's rights as by a concern to control population growth for Malthusian reasons. To the extent that screening and selective abortion is a manifestation of women's rights and reproductive freedom, the practice might therefore have less historical backing than in the West. Shimizono also notes that while Westerners place great confidence in, quote, reasoning power that has become independent from nature and body, end quote, and stress self-determination of sovereign selves as indispensable for the value of freedom, Japanese culture places less weight on individual autonomy, 
and is more critical of the arrogance typically associated with modernization and modern scientific technology. Quote, Differences in the perceptions of prenatal genetic diagnosis among different nations, Shimazona concludes, suggest that the culture and historical background of each nation affect people's bioethics. End quote. It would be a mistake to suppose that there exists a unified Asian outlook or Eastern set of values that is opposed to genetic selection. Consider, for example, the situation in Singapore, whose former Prime Minister Li Kuang Yu spoke frequently about the hereditability of intelligence and its importance for the country's future, and whose government introduced measures explicitly designed to encourage university graduates to have more children. And, of course, attitudes can vary sharply even within a country, as anyone familiar with public bioethics in the United States is well aware. One context in which enhancement is already in use and with proven efficacy, is sports. This makes it an interesting case study. One should, however, be careful not to unduly generalize conclusions based on the model of athletic performance enhancement, because competitive sport is characterized by certain features that are not present in many other enhancement contexts. The advantage that an athlete gets from doping is a purely positional. He might win the race, but this benefit comes at the expense of all the other athletes who rank lower as a result. Moreover, a sport, or a game more generally, is a peculiar kind of activity that is essentially constituted by more or less arbitrary conventions. In golf, the goal is not simply to get the ball down in the hole. That could be achieved easily by picking up the ball and placing it in the hole by hand. Rather, the goal is to sink the ball while following a set of rules whose justification may be a combination of tradition, entertainment value, and fairness, but not narrowly construed instrumental utility. These and other factors combine to make sports ethics a distinct subfield of practical ethics. Torben Tenhuer draws a tristinction between negative interventions aimed at curing a disease or eliminating a disability positive interventions aimed at improving the functioning of a human organism within the range of natural variation, and enhancement, by which he means an intervention aiming to take an individual beyond normal functioning of a human organism. In medicine, in general, he says, we can accept both positive measures and enhancement. In sports medicine, however, both positive measures and enhancement are viewed with suspicion. Tenhuer believes that the rationale behind this suspicion, quote, has to do with a very special aspect of the ethos of elite sport. The idea that in elite sport, we search for the limits of what a human being can do. Together with a very special notion of justice, according to which we are allowed to admire the individual who has drawn a winning ticket in the natural genetic lottery and excels. End quote. Tenhe himself, however, does not accept this special notion of justice, so he is unwilling to embrace the ethos of elite sport. Without this ethos, he thinks there is no need for a special medical ethics for sports medicine. It is enough if elite sport, quote, provides us with good entertainment, fierce, fair and unpredictable competition, a sweet tension of uncertainty of outcome. End quote. 
However, he suggests that if we do want to add something to this, it could be the following. Quote, In elite sport, we can test out the results of such enhancements and see not where the limits are of the given human nature, but how far we can push them. We can enjoy what we see at the competition, and we can feel admiration for all the scientific achievements that have rendered possible the performances. And we can thank the athletes for taking the inconvenience to test them out before us. End quote. Christine Overall, focusing particularly on life extension, argues that social category identities are relevant for the ethics of enhancement. One's membership in social categories such as sex, race, and socioeconomic class, she says, largely determines whether or not one has access to the benefits of life enhancement and whether or not one can pay the costs of these enhancements, making questions of access and exclusion important. It would also be a mistake to ignore the ways in which various enhancement practices could affect social attitudes towards various groups. Overall makes the point that enhancement could be used in equality-promoting ways by giving opportunities to disadvantaged groups that they could not otherwise have had. She criticizes bioconservative bioethicist Daniel Callahan's view that older patients should be denied life-saving treatments on grounds that the normal human life cycle is already enough for a full life. Overall points out that the fullness of a life is not a simple function of age, since, for example, people living in disadvantaged circumstances might have been deprived of important experiences even if they have lived for a long time. Life extension could be the only way in which an old person who has lived a deprived life could get a fair shot at having a full life. One might also add that even for somebody who is living a rich and flourishing life, there may not be any point at which the life becomes full, in the sense that it could not possibly become better still if it were continued. And even if there were such a point, there is no guarantee that it would coincide with one's 70th birthday, or whatever the natural lifespan is taken to be. Even a tree life takes much more than three score and ten to complete. So why not a human life? Francis Fukuyama who in a widely cited article nominated transhumanism as, quote, the world's most dangerous idea, end quote, believes that liberal democracy depends on the fact that all human beings share the same essence, which, in Fukuyama's view, consists in some undefined factor X. Were we to engage in enhancement, we might unwittingly alter this factor X and thereby destroy the basis of human dignity and the idea of equality underpinning the liberal democratic ideal. In this volume, Daniel Wickler, building on his own earlier work, considers specifically the prospect of cognitive enhancement and asks whether civil liberties presuppose roughly equal mental abilities. Wickler begins by noting that egalitarians need not, and do not, assume that everybody has the same cognitive capacities or even the same genetic predisposition to intelligence. One must distinguish the empirical claim of human equality of capacities, which is false, from the normative claim that all competent human persons should have the same civic status, which might well be true. Wickler then draws our attention to the paternalism with which we treat human beings with severe or moderate cognitive impairments. Mentally incompetent adults 
may be barred from voting and making certain financial decisions, and may even be denied freedom of movement. Now, suppose that cognitive enhancement produced a sizable population of human beings as intellectually superior to what is now a normally intelligent person as the latter is to someone who is now regarded as mentally incompetent. In this situation, could we remaining normals be rightfully subjected to similar kinds of paternalistic restriction that in the present world are uncontroversially imposed on humans who are mentally incompetent? After distinguishing between a relativistic view and a threshold view of what qualifies an individual for full civic status, Wickler answers his own question with a tentative, yes, under certain circumstances at least, a future population of cognitively superior agents might have a duty to treat remaining normals paternalistically. Robin Hansen addresses one particular intellectual attribute, truth orientation. He reviews three types of enhancement that might strengthen our truth orientation. More recording and standardized statistics on our lives, prediction markets on major disputed topics, and techniques or modifications that could render our minds more transparent. Trends towards these kinds of enhancement, he suggests, could reduce the epistemic vice of self-deception and bias a vice that can be especially dangerous in a modern world with nuclear weapons and other powerful technologies. Yet, as Hansen notes, self-deception and bias are quite central features of our present psyches, their prevalence having been demonstrated in many studies as well as, according to Hansen, by the ubiquity of persistent disagreements even among agents who have mutual knowledge of each other's opinion. We might balk at the prospect of living without illusions, when we realize how jarringly different such lives would be from our accustomed condition. If so, we might also be tempted to seek to regulate the behavior of others, including our distant descendants, for example, by trying to prevent the development of the technologies that would make an illusion-deprived condition feasible. Hansen warns against the danger of moral arrogance. Aside from the moral importance of autonomy, He adduces also an epistemic reason for why we should be wary of imposing our moral views on others, just as we can be, and frequently are, overconfident in our beliefs regarding empirical questions, we can also be, and no doubt frequently are, overconfident in our moral beliefs. We often deceive ourselves into thinking that our moral convictions are better supported by reason than they really are, and better supported than the moral convictions of those who disagree with us. This warning applies particularly when we are tempted to regulate the behavior of future generations of people. Quote, We should be especially wary of moral arrogance regarding the moral behavior of our distant descendants, as those descendants will have a clear information advantage over us. We cannot listen to them as we could when arguing with a contemporary. Our descendants will know of our advice, and also of many other things we do not know. In addition, they may well have a stronger truth orientation than us. End quote. The argument for moral arrogance, Hansen suggests, might cut especially against those who think that we should limit truth orientation enhancements. Quote, the warning to beware of our self-deception regarding our moral abilities would seem to apply with a special force to those who argue the virtues of self-deception. After all, 
Does not the pro-self-deception side in a debate seem more likely to be self-deceived in this matter? End quote. Section heading. Enhancement as Practical Challenge. Several of the authors represented in this book, including Francis Cam and Norman Daniels, express concerns about the difficulty of succeeding and ensuring sufficient safety when attempting to enhance complex systems. In the final chapter of the book, Nick Bostrom and Anders Sandberg tackle this practical challenge of enhancement head-on. Bostrom and Sandberg observe that there is a widespread popular belief in the wisdom of nature, which we ignore at our peril. Many people prefer natural remedies and natural food supplements and willingly embrace natural ways of improving human capacities, such as training, diet, and grooming. Interventions seen as unnatural or artificial, by contrast, are commonly viewed with suspicion, at least until they become familiar enough to become assimilated into the category of the natural. This attitude seems to be especially pronounced in relation to unnatural ways of enhancing human capacities, which are viewed as unwise, short-sighted, and hubristic. The belief in the wisdom of nature, Bostrom and Sandberg suggest, can also manifest as diffusely moral objections against enhancement. Bostrom and Sandberg then propose that the belief in the wisdom of nature is partially true. A human being is a marvel of evolved complexity, and when we manipulate complex evolved systems which are poorly understood, our interventions often fail or backfire. Bostrom and Sandberg seek to encapsulate the grain of truth contained in the belief in the wisdom of nature in the form of the evolutionary optimality challenge. When somebody proposes an intervention alleged to enhance some biological function of capacity, we should pose ourselves the following challenge. Quote, Why, if this intervention is such a good thing, have we not already evolved to be that way? End quote. Developing this evolutionary heuristic Bostrom and Sandberg go on to explain and exemplify three categories of potential answers to challenge the question. Changed trade-offs, value discordance, and evolutionary restrictions. For some proposed enhancement interventions, a satisfactory answer to the evolutionary optimality challenge can be found in one of these categories, giving us a green light to proceed. We can see precisely why in the particular case at hand we can reasonably hope to improve on nature. For other proposed interventions, the heuristic gives a red light, suggesting that the intervention may not work or may have long-term and perhaps subtle side effects. In such cases, we may need to rethink our enhancement idea or at least proceed with extreme caution. The heuristic that Bostrom and Sandberg develop, inspired by the field of evolutionary medicine, is primarily empirical and practical in nature. It is intended to help researchers and enhancement users identify and evaluate promising enhancement interventions by providing a method for thinking through what evolutionary considerations can tell us about their likely effects on our minds and bodies. As such, the heuristic has no moral content. Yet, if Bostrom and Sandberg are correct in surmising that anti-enhancement intuitions, which surface as moral sentiments, are sometimes rooted in an implicit belief in nature's wisdom, then the heuristic can also contribute to ethical discourse 
by allowing for a more transparent and constructive way of acknowledging and taking into account these hidden and subtle prudential concerns. Section Heading Conclusion Human enhancement has moved from the realm of science fiction to that of practical ethics. There are now effective physical, cognitive, mood, cosmetic, and sexual enhancers, drugs and interventions that can enhance at least some aspects of some capacities in at least some individuals some of the time. The rapid advances currently taking place in the biomedical sciences and related technological areas make it clear that a lot more will become possible over the coming years and decades. The question has shifted from, is this science fiction? to, should we do it? Footnote number 12. It remains important, however, to distinguish between what is possible today, what may become feasible soon, and what would require radical new technological capabilities to achieve. And in answering the question of what is possible today, it is also important to distinguish proof of concept in a laboratory study from applications that are ready to be rolled out for widespread use. End of footnote. This book presents a wide variety of perspectives relevant to answering this question. Christine Overall, in an assessment which seems to be supported by many of our authors, opines that given the enormous variation, moral generalizations about all enhancement processes and technologies are unwise, and that they should instead be evaluated individually. Whether we should employ a particular enhancement depends on the reasons for and against that particular enhancement. Creating superimmunity to all known biological and viral insults is very different from practicing sports doping. Choosing the personality traits of our offspring through genetic selection is very different from taking a pill that temporarily boosts our ability to concentrate. On this line of reasoning, it is time to take a further step from asking, should we do it, to analysing the it and asking a number of much more specific questions about concrete actions and policy options related to particular enhancement issues within a given socio-political cultural context. The result of this will not be a yes or no to enhancement in general, but a more contextualised and particularised set of ideas and recommendations for how individuals, organisations and states should move forward in an enhancement era. Where do we go from here? We believe that the enhancement debate needs to be developed simultaneously in two directions, both, as we might say, downwards and upwards. The downwards direction is the one just suggested, zooming in on issues of more limited scale by disaggregating and contextualizing enhancements and addressing the particularities of the choices faced by various stakeholders and decision-makers. The upwards direction is to address ethical and pragmatic challenges that emerge when we zoom out and consider the roles that enhancement of various types of capacity could play in the long-term and big-picture future of humanity. This would require discussing how enhancement, including the prospect of future more radical enhancement, might interact with other macro trends and global problems and prospects such as economic growth and inequality, existential risks and global catastrophic risks, molecular nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, 
space colonization, virtual reality, surveillance technology, democracy and global governance, along with the deep epistemological, methodological and moral questions that arise when one attempts to think about these interlocking issues in a serious and critical manner. These two directions may seem to be in tension to one another, but in fact they simply point to two coexisting intellectual frontiers, each with important and worthy problems to be addressed. A danger we see for enhancement ethics is it's getting stuck in the middle. An uncritical acceptance of enhancement as an analytical category and as an organizing idea for our inquiries risks obscuring the heterogeneity of potential enhancement applications and the need to situate them within the micro-context of particular policy decisions, as well as within the macro-context constituted by other big-picture challenges for humanity in the 21st century. In some circumstances, regulated access may be fairer and safer than prohibition. In other cases, enhancements could be selected to address inequality or social injustice or deployed at a population level for societal benefit. One spokesperson for the US military, which is actively exploring the potential of human enhancement technology, said, quote, The world contains approximately 4.2 billion people over the age of 20. Even a small enhancement of cognitive capacity in these individuals would probably have an impact on the world economy, rivaling that of the internet. End quote. It seems likely that this century will herald unprecedented advances in nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, cognitive science and other related areas. These advances will provide the opportunity fundamentally to change the human condition. This presents both great risks and enormous potential benefits. Our fate is, to a greater degree than ever before in human history, in our own hands. To decide whether we have reason to promote a particular enhancement will require wisdom, dialogue, good scientific research, good public policy and academic debate. This book represents one of the first steps to advancing academic discussion of enhancement from a variety of analytic philosophical perspectives. It is neither our expectation nor our primary objective that readers will be persuaded either to support or oppose enhancement. Rather, our hope is that the book will cause its readers to reflect more deeply on one of the most important and challenging issues of the new century. Footnote number 18. We are grateful to Rebecca Roach for valuable comments on an earlier version of this introduction. End of footnote. That was an audio narration of Human Enhancement Ethics, The State of the Debate by Nick Bostrom and Julian Savulescu. Narrated by Sean Acker. Radio Bostrom is run by Peter Hartree and supported by a grant from the Future Fund Regranting Program. You can find more episodes and subscribe at radiobostrom.com. If you like these recordings, please support our work by sharing some episodes to your friends.